If you're a child born into a poor family in the US, what are the most important factors in your life that will influence whether or not you rise out of poverty? Well, today on the show, we're joined again by Matthew Jackson, Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford and external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, this is part one of a two-part series. And in this episode, Matthew is going to introduce us to a massive study he was involved with, a study that looked at data on 21 billion friendships in the US. A study that asked, what is it really that allows a child to get ahead? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. So today, I'd like to welcome back Matthew Jackson. Hi, Sean. It's great to be back. Now, the last time you were on the show, we talked a lot about networks. We talked about the Medicis. We talked about the four different ways you can influence a network. Today, we're going to stay with networks, but we're going to talk about a very big network. I'm going to talk about a big piece of work that you've worked on. We're going to split this across two episodes. So This is going to be very much part one, and we'll obviously follow up with part two. And the study is essentially a study of social capital and mobility in the United States. So probably the best place to start is, what do we mean by social capital and what do we mean by mobility? Part of the reason that we started the study is people talk about social capital all the time. And when we talk about financial capital, what do we mean? We usually mean wealth. We mean how much money do you have or what land do I have? What investments do I have? When we talk about human capital, we're usually talking about your skills or your knowledge or your cognitive ability or how articulate you are, whether you're charismatic. So there's a whole series of things about your human side that is important. And social capital refers to sort of your social wealth. How well connected am I? And this gets back to some things we talked about before. You know, am I central and influential in a network? And here, the part of the puzzle was that the word social capital has been thrown around now for a century or so. And it means lots of different things to different people. And we were trying to figure out, well, which type of social capital really matters in determining your economic outcomes. So if I want to figure out whether I'm going to be economically successful and secure in my later life, what is it about my network and my social connections that predict that later in time? And that success, one way of measuring that is with this concept of mobility. So what's mobility? So this is economic mobility, and it's measured as trying to figure out, let's look at a kid who grows up in a family that's, say, in the bottom quarter of the income distribution. The family's relatively poor. This is sort of lower class. And now we ask, where are they going to end up when they're an adult? And if the world was perfectly mobile, their family roots wouldn't have anything to do with where they end up. It would just be their person that would determine where they ended up. And so they could end up anywhere in a distribution. But immobility refers to the fact that you often end up looking a lot like your parents, right? So if you start in the bottom, you end up staying in the bottom, whereas mobility means I start at the bottom, but I'm able to move somewhere else in that distribution. And so economic mobility really measures, you know, take a kid in the bottom quarter of the distribution, where do they end up on average? And if they end up on average at this 
bottom quarter, then we're not mobile. If they end up on average halfway through the distribution, then they've moved you know, pretty much randomly through the population. And I suppose to back up there, but I'd be a bit philosophical for a moment. Your study was in the US. I'm going to come to that in a second. But you know, the US is sort of famed, or there's a mythology around if you work hard, you can be whatever you want to do. In other words, you should have complete mobility. But that's not the case. And there are other countries which are much more mobile in terms of getting ahead. Yes. The myth, to some extent, there's a recent book by one of my colleagues, Ron Abarmitsky, who looks at immigration. It turns out that the immigrants into the United States are very mobile. The kids of immigrants tend to do very well and actually better than U.S. citizens who are born and raised there. So it's interesting to sort of track what impacts mobility, who's getting ahead, and why. And so this study, Social Capital and Mobility in the United States, what was the objective? So this was combined with Raj Chetty's work. Raj Chetty has been studying mobility for quite a while, so he has very detailed information about mobility. I'm very interested in networks, so I've been talking and thinking about social capital measures, how do you measure that? And then there are some former students from Stanford who are now researchers at NYU, Teresa Kukler and Johannes Strobel, who have been working with Facebook data, large amounts of Facebook data. And so putting all this together, we're able to measure different types of social capital. We're able to see mobility and we can begin to really unpack what types of social capital, what is it about somebody's situation, their social circumstances that determines whether they're going to end up in a good place in the income distribution or whether they're going to be stuck at the bottom. So this study used Facebook data, and I suppose it's worth saying straight up, you use Facebook data not to look at the connections between individuals on Facebook, but to infer from the Facebook data the real-life connections and where people fitted into the network. I think a nice aspect of the Facebook data is that there are actually a lot of parallels between who your real friends and family are and who the people you're connecting with on a regular social basis are and who appears in your Facebook friends and who you're tagging in photos and who you're posting on their boards and so forth. That kind of activity, liking and other kinds of things, really does reflect social interactions that underlie this. And so it was a very useful lens in ways that a lot of other platforms might give you a partial picture. You know, like if you're just looking at emails, it might just be your work friends or if you were looking at something like LinkedIn, it would be professional, your broader professional circle. Or if you're looking at some other platforms like Twitter, then it could be even a different set of relationships. So the nice thing about Facebook is it really captures the set of community and acquaintances that people are really generally in touch with in person and the people that influence them. So you're using it to essentially map out the network in the same way as you did with the door knocking in the Indian villages that we spoke about in the last episode. So you're building a view of the network, which you can then say, well, from a social capital perspective, from a mobility perspective, where do people start, where do they end up? Give us the numbers in the Facebook data. They're pretty staggering numbers. So we focus just on 25 to 44-year-olds. So that's just a small slice of the population, but that's a slice where we can see where they are, and then where they were in high school. We can go back and see who their high school friends were. That already turns out to be more than 70 million people. So our data set consisted of more than 70 million people and more than 20 billion friendships. So it's a huge data set. And actually the team on the paper, I think we have 22 authors. So it's a big set of people to analyze this because it's not as if it's just a spreadsheet. You know, you look at a spreadsheet or you just draw the network. With this size, 
it takes a lot of programming skills and other things just to be able to even wrestle all that information into a form where we can use it and analyze it in a meaningful way. We're going to get into what you found and what social capital actually drives mobility. But before we do, I think it's useful to define something that comes up again and again, the concept of socioeconomic status. What's that? Socioeconomic status and what we really did was try to predict people's standing economically. So it's more their economic standing and really a prediction of their income. The nice thing about the data is from the census data, we have information about incomes down to a block level. So we can look at a a particular block in, say, New York City and say, okay, look, if you live on 7th Street and 3rd Avenue, you're going to have more or less this income. And so then by putting together that kind of information about it and a lot of information from Facebook on people's backgrounds, where they live, whether they went to college or not, you know, a whole series of things, we can predict incomes very accurately. So we sort of train the data using machine learning and using 22 different variables, in fact, from the data set, we can then predict somebody's income. So then we use that income as the socioeconomic status. And it's presumably mobility is someone's ability to move from a certain socioeconomic status to a higher socioeconomic status over time, essentially move from where they were born and the socioeconomic status that they were born into to a higher one. Exactly. So we can actually map out Facebook. You can see who's likely your parents. So who do you identify as your parents? Who do you post on on Father's Day or Mother's Day? And so we can track your parents and then we do the same thing with their income. So we have a prediction of what your parents' income was. And then we can look at your, okay, we think you grew up in a poor household. How does your income compare to your parents? So you can do those kinds of comparisons. You can track that kind of thing. And we can also track mobility by neighborhood. In the study, you looked at different types of social capital. And what we want to do is move through a couple of them and look at, I suppose we're curious about how do you measure it? What is it? And does it have an impact on mobility? So the first one of those really want to start with is the concept of social cohesion. What's social cohesion? Yeah, so social cohesion refers to, let me give you a couple of examples. So one is just, are all the people around me in touch with each other? Does everybody in the community know each other? Is it a really cohesive community? So if I go out on my block, are all my neighbors friends with each other? So all my neighbors know each other. And that gets back to our discussions of Kazimoto Medici in the previous episode. Having friends in common is really important. You know, if I'm trying to make sure that you behave and we don't have a legal system to do that, I might rely on the fact that we both know the same people and we both have those friends in common. And if you misbehave, then those friends can help sanction you. And so social ostracism depends a lot on having really close-knit networks that gossip a lot. And, and that can be very powerful in enforcing behavior. And so social cohesiveness, what we do is we look at the local network patterns. If I'm friends with somebody, do we have friends in common? Are most of my friends friends with each other? These are network measures that you can see in the data and vary pretty dramatically across different areas. So, you know, you get a pretty widespread difference depending on whether you're looking at a small rural town in the West or an urban city in the East. You know, you'll see very different patterns of these kinds of cohesiveness. And the key question is, does it make a difference to mobility? This is sort of the, it takes a village kind of, you know, story. Usually we think, oh yeah, you know, the community that you're in and the strength of that community is going to be very important in predicting mobility. It turns out not to have much prediction. Perhaps surprisingly, 
whether or not I have strong cohesion or not has a very low correlation with whether or not I end up moving ahead in the economic ladder. And why is that? It's not to say that this kind of social capital isn't really important. So one explanation is that this kind of social capital is something you rely on because you're not advancing. So, you know, part of the reason I have to rely on my neighbors for help and maybe a loan or taking care of something is because I actually don't have any other means of obtaining these things. And so it could be that what ends up happening is this kind of strong social capital ends up coming about as a result of the fact that we are in a situation where we're not advancing and we're staying in the same community and that ends up building this, but it's not helping us get out. It's not helping build connections that I need to get jobs and to educate myself and to move up the ladder. A topic we'll return to in part two of this in a lot more detail. So the second broad area you looked at, civic engagement, what's that? Civic engagement is another one that, that people have looked at and thinking of as a, an important element of community strength. And this is, are people volunteering? Do people trust each other? So there's a whole series of surveys where you ask, do you trust your neighbor not to steal from you? Do you trust politicians in your area? So there's a whole series of questions about trust, about engagement. Are you volunteering? Are you donating? Am I part of civic organizations? Are there powerful groups that are taking part because of volunteer among the community. So these are kinds of things that we think of as this is a well-functioning community, right? People are engaged, they're cooperating with each other, they're helping each other out via these kinds of volunteer organizations. You think of that as civic engagement. And what did you find with it? Not that much of a strong relationship with economic mobility. So it's not providing people with the types of things they need to climb up the ladder. But again, you know, it could mean that I'm in a much more functional community and it's a much more pleasant place to live. And maybe there's a whole series of benefits from this, but it's not something that's helping me advance. So that's the first two, which is interesting that, yes, they have other benefits, but they don't give you the benefits in terms of economic mobility. Which brings us to the last one of these which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, economic connectedness. What is economic connectedness? Yeah, so economic connectedness, what we looked at was how well connected in terms of friendships are the poor to the rich. So look in a given area and look at people who are in the bottom half of the income distribution and ask, what's the fraction of their friends that are in the top half of the income distribution. And how does that compare? You know, so if they were making friends at a normal rate, half their friends should be above average income, right? So they should be above median income. So half of their friends should be rich in some sense. And if they aren't well-connected, then they're going to have fewer than half of their friends. And so we have this measure of economic connectedness where if the fraction of my friends is actually a half and it's supposed to be a half, then we say that's a one, right? It's a one-to-one -one ratio between what it should be in terms of a random assignment of friendships and what it is. And if I'm not connected at all, I'd have a zero. None of my friends would be wealthy. Yeah, so it goes from zero to one where zero is... If you're poor, you've got no above, you've got no rich friends or you've got no people above a medium income. And if it's a one, you've got 50%. So you're where we should be if there was no restraints or constraints on how we function as human beings. So this concept of economic connectiveness, did it make a difference? Yeah, so it was eye-opening. 
because the idea here was, yeah, these are the connections that are going to help me have information about whether or not I can get a job or what it takes to study and get into university and so forth. So these can be really valuable connections. So we hypothesized, yeah, this should make a difference. And maybe it'll pop out more than these other measures. It's just by far the most highly explanatory variable in predicting somebody's economic mobility. It's four to five times stronger than these other variables in terms of correlations. And moreover, once you start looking at it, a lot of the normal things that you put in about whether a place is poor or whether unemployed in the area or something, you know, you, you look at all these normal economic indicators that correlate with mobility, they stop mattering once you start looking at this economic connectedness. So it's not only really strong, but it seems to dominate a lot of the other social capital measures and a lot of other usual explanatory variables in terms of, you know, explaining what's happening. So it seems that these connections really tell us a lot about somebody's prospects of moving out of poverty. So your study fundamentally concluded that social cohesion, civic engagement, yes, they do good things, but in terms of mobility, they don't matter. And then social mobility is dominated by this concept of economic connectedness. And this is a huge concept. And we're going to stop there and we're going to spend the entire next episode, part two, of this on the concept of economic connectedness. Matthew, thank you very much. Thanks, I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 